So we are going through a wonderful book of prophecy in the Old Testament. Here on Wednesday nights, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and slowly but surely, we have made it to Zechariah chapter 9. So I'd like you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9. You really need to read along with us in the Bible. If you did not bring your Bible with you, you can... Find one, hopefully, under the seat in front of you. Zechariah chapter 9 is page 1097. Zechariah chapter 9. Father, I want to thank you tonight for the absolute supernatural quality of your word. How there is absolutely no doubt that this book is from you, that you've given us your word, and we can stand on it, we can trust it. We can believe every word that is written. We thank you that your word changes hearts, changes lives. And I pray that you would bless our study tonight in your word. Give us insight by your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So predictive prophecy fulfilled is one of the strongest proofs that the Bible is in fact the word of God. The Bible is 100% accurate in prophecy. No other book can make that claim. Everything that is predicted in Scripture is fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And we're going to get three great examples of predictive prophecy fulfilled in history from our text tonight. And you're going to notice that these prophecies, they're not fulfilled figuratively or symbolically. They're fulfilled literally. In the Bible, prophecies are given literally and they're fulfilled literally. So we're going to look at some great examples of that tonight, but Before we do, let me remind you that the prophecies that we're reading here in the book of Zechariah were received and written in 520 B.C. So we're looking at prophecies that were written 2,500 years ago. 500 years before Jesus came the first time. So I want you to remember that date. In fact, I'm going to have you say it with me. 520 B.C. Say it. 520 B.C. I want you to remember that date. That's when these prophecies were written. Okay, so let's look at the first prophecy that we find in chapter 9. Look at verse 1. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord. 
against the land of Hadrock and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre, that's a city, built herself a tower heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Verse 8, I will camp around my house. That's the temple in Jerusalem. Because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Okay, so that prophecy predicts the Lord's judgment upon Gentile nations to the north and the west and the south of Jerusalem. Three cities are mentioned in verse 1 and 2, Hadrak, Damascus, Hamath. Those are all way up north of Jerusalem in Syria. Tyre and Sidon, those are to the west on the Mediterranean coast to the west of Jerusalem. And in verse 5, it mentions Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and verse 6, Ashdod, Those are all cities, Gentile cities, to the south. This prophecy predicts that God is going to judge all those nations north, those nations to the west, those nations south. But in the midst of that judgment, according to verse 8, Jerusalem is going to be spared, going to be saved, going to be preserved. Okay, so when was this prophecy given? 520 BC. This prophecy was fulfilled literally about 200 years after it was written in the conquest of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came into power in 333 BC. And he conquered the world, the ancient world, quicker than any other leader ever has. And he established the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire. 
And one of his campaigns went exactly as this prophesied. Alexander the Great started way up north. He conquered a lot of northern cities up there, those two, Hamath and Hadrach, Damascus. Then he came down, he got Sidon, he got Tyre, and then he got all those cities right there, and then he went up towards Jerusalem. Just as it was predicted 200 years before it happened. Now, the way that Alexander the Great conquered the city of Tyre is an amazing story. In fact, Tyre, you see it's on the, on the Mediterranean coast there. I'm going to drill down, and here's Tyre. Now, the old city of Tyre was on the mainland, and it was fortified, so there were walls around it. But they still did not feel safe there. So they actually moved their fortified city to an island about a half mile out into the Mediterranean, truly happened. And they fortified their city on that island, a half a mile into the sea. And they were safe. The Assyrian Empire tried to take Tyre. They besieged that city from the coast here for five years, hoping that they would break. They didn't break. Babylon came along. They laid siege to the city for 15 years. And they didn't break. The Persians who came afterwards, they didn't even bother. Alexander the Great brought his army down. And he said, we're going to take it and we're not going to wait. True story. He commanded all of his men to take all of the rubble of what was broken down here, throw it into the sea, and they literally made a land bridge from the mainland to the island under Alexander the Great. They conquered that city in seven months. took them seven months. Here is even a recent aerial shot. Tire on the mainland ancient Tyre. Now, look what it says of Tyre in verse 3 of chapter 9. Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the what? Sea. And she will be devoured by fire. That was predicted 200 years before it happened. So, he took them out, comes down, takes Tyre, takes these cities, and then Alexander the Great definitely had his eyes set on Jerusalem. He came, brought his army to take Jerusalem. But God spared the city in a wonderful way. Alexander the Great and his army were coming up towards Jerusalem. And the night before they got there, according to Josephus the historian, the high priest in Jerusalem had a dream. 
And in the dream, he was told that he needed to dress everyone in his city in white. So everyone dressed in white garments. And the priests, the high priests and the others, they dressed in white. And they actually came out of Jerusalem and met Alexander the Great peacefully. Alexander the Great was so impressed by that that he did them no harm. They ended up inviting Alexander the Great into the city of Jerusalem. They welcomed him there. And according to Josephus, they showed Alexander the Great prophecies that were written about him by Daniel the prophet, prophecies that were written even a few couple hundred years before these prophecies. He was so impressed that history says he even offered sacrifices in the temple courts to the God of Israel. So look at verse 8. God says, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. Alexander the Great passed by, went down south, but then went back up, and God preserved his people. A prophecy fulfilled in detail. Now, I've put this chart up a lot. This is our prophetic lens that we need to put on. Because remember, in Old Testament prophecy, sometimes there's a short-term fulfillment, and at the same time, There's a long-term fulfillment. Now, notice what it says in verse 8 at the end. It says, No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So the promise is, no more oppressors will come to Jerusalem. The problem is, after that happened, many oppressors have come to Jerusalem later in history. But... This is pointing also ahead to the final battle when Jerusalem will one day be secured permanently by the Lord Jesus Christ and there will not be any oppressor again. All right, let's look at the next. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to what? Sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, so we have just read one of the most important messianic prophecies that you will find in the entire Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 should be a verse that every single one of us as Christians know. If you're a student of the Bible, this is a verse that you should know. Zechariah predicted 
Behold, your king is coming to you, Jewish nation. When he comes on the scene, he'll be just, righteous, perfect. He'll have salvation in his hand. He's coming to save. He'll be lowly and gentle. And he'll come riding into the city on what kind of an animal? The donkey, the foal of a donkey. So I'm sending you, your Messiah, your king. And here's how you're going to recognize him. He's going to come riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay. When was this prophecy given? 520 B.C. So 500 plus years later. Around 32, 33 A.D. That prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That event, as you know, is recorded by all four Gospels. And all four Gospels point back to this prophecy being fulfilled. And remember, we've studied that before. Jesus went out of his way to secure a donkey. To make sure that he would ride into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. Gang, that was a huge sign. That was the fulfillment of this prophecy. That was literally Jesus being presented to the nation of Israel as their king. And they should have saw it. But they didn't, did they? The nation rejected their Messiah. Though fulfilling one of the best known prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. It's incredible. Okay, now look at verse 10. It's still speaking of Messiah. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, when the Messiah comes, there will be no more need for weapons of war. Ephraim won't need a chariot. They won't need a war horse. They won't need the bow. When he comes, it says in the middle of verse 10, he shall speak peace to the what? The nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, And from the river to the ends of the earth. So the prediction here is that when the Messiah comes, he is going to usher worldwide peace. No more war. His dominion, his kingdom set up from river to river all over the world. Now I got to ask you, did that happen at the first coming of Jesus Christ? No. But it's predicted, so it has to happen. When is it going to happen? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I've put up this chart, and this is so important. This is the perspective of the Old Testament prophet, 
like Zechariah. They saw peaks. Now that all of the revelation has been recorded throughout the New Testament, we're standing to the side. We see the peak and the valley. The prophets saw the peaks. The prophets never saw a church age. It's a complete mystery in the Old Testament. And in a lot of ways, they didn't really see a lot about the millennial kingdom, although there's a lot of information about it. But they didn't know how long it would take. They saw the first coming of Jesus, his birth, death, suffering, and even resurrection and ascension. And then they saw details about his second coming and details of this kingdom that the Messiah would set up and rule upon. So that is very, very important to understand when you're studying Old Testament prophecy. They see peaks, and sometimes both peaks are mashed together. Here we have peak 1 in verse 9, right? What do we have in verse 10? Peak 2, mashed together. I can't tell you how important it is to understand that. And you're going to run into it a lot of times in the Old Testament. This is the uh, verse you get every year at Christmas on a Christmas card. Remember this verse? Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. Do you see both peaks smashed together? Verse 6 is basically the first coming of Christ. Verse 7 will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Here's another example. Isaiah 61 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are abound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. I bring that out to you because in Luke chapter 4... Jesus was in a synagogue, and he read from that scroll. He read from Isaiah 61. And he said all of this up to there he was fulfilling. So he read the whole port. Opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. He closed the scroll. Because he was acknowledging, I believe the things he would accomplish in his first coming. And he would accomplish that at his second coming. So that is very, very, very important. All over the Old Testament, it predicts Messiah. And you got to know, 
it predicts Messiah in his first coming and his second coming. And that explains why a lot of people had trouble with Jesus at his first coming. They were expecting the political conqueror, right? They didn't take the suffering prophecies seriously. But the ones concerning his first coming were very, very specific. And they were fulfilled specifically. Okay, I want you to notice another awesome prophecy here in chapter 9. Look at verse 11. I want you to read it carefully with me. As for you also, speaking to the Jewish nation, because of the blood of your covenant, I've made a covenant with you that I'm going to keep. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Verse 13. I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O whom? Greece. And made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. They shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So this prophecy predicts a conflict, a tremendous battle between the Jewish people and whom? Greece. I mean, verse 13 is the clue. I will raise up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. There's going to be a conflict between Israel and Greece. Now that in itself is amazing because this was written 200 years before there was a Greece. 200 years before there was an Alexander the Great. So there's going to be a conflict. Now, we just saw the story how Alexander the Great came in and allowed Jerusalem to survive. They had no beef with Alexander the Great. But eventually, they would have a beef with who came after Alexander the Great. It says here that they would be taken captive. Greece would do them wrong. But God would raise up sons of Zion and deliver them from the sons of Greece. Save them, preserve them, put them back in the land, in the temple. They'll be like the jewels of a crown and they'll live in prosperity. 
Okay. When was that prophecy given? 520 BC. You guys are awesome. Great memories. 520 BC. I believe that prophecy was fulfilled approximately 350 years later. In the days leading up to what's called the Hasmonean dynasty, or maybe you heard about the Maccabean revolt. Have any of you heard of the Maccabees? Maccabean revolt. Okay, so Alexander the Great conquered the entire world at the age of 33. Incredible how God used him really as an instrument of judgment. Alexander the Great died young. After he died, the Grecian Empire was divided into four regions, north, south, east, west. And each region was given a different king, a different governor. And, and do you think they all got along? No, they hated each other. They fought each other for the next hundred years. Well, eventually one of the kings that became king in the north is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He came into power in 175 BC. And by the way, he murdered his own brother to get the spot. This guy is a monster. He's well known. Old Testament prophecies speak a lot about him, including great detail in Daniel chapter 11. Antiochus Epiphanes hated the Jewish people, wanted to control them, wanted them to pay tribute, and the Jewish people did not want to comply. So in 168 BC, he attacked and burned Jerusalem He slaughtered 100,000 Jews. He desecrated their temple. He forbid the Jewish people to follow the Mosaic law in observing the Sabbath, their annual feasts, the traditional sacrifices in the temple, even the circumcision of children. He forbid it. He desecrated the temple. He set up an image to Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem, which is the supreme act of blasphemy. On December 16th, 167 BC, the Jews were ordered to sacrifice pigs on their altar and to eat swine's flesh or be penalized by death. This guy was a monster. By the way, Antiochus Epiphany is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist of the last day. The Antichrist of the last day will be just as ruthless with the Jewish people of the last day. So, they had a problem with Greece. What did God do? Long story short. He raised up sons of Zion. There was a Hasmonean Jewish priest by the name of Mattathias. And he began a revolt against Greece in right around 167 BC. He had five sons. The oldest was named Judah, Eliezer, Simon, 
John and Jonathan, and they began a revolt. In 166 BC, dad died just a year later. Judah took over. And this man was a ferocious warrior. In fact, he was given a surname by all the people, a nickname, Judah Maccabee. You know what Maccabee means? The hammer. It is thought that the hammer was this man's weapon of choice. And he ferociously led his other brothers and a band of rebels against Antiochus Epiphanes and those that followed him. And over the next three years, using guerrilla warfare, they totally defeated the Greeks. God defeated them. God raised them up. God was with them. On December 14th, 164 B.C., they were able to take back the temple. They cleansed the temple. They were able to start all of the sacrifices again and and all of the different rituals. And it was at that time that they lit a menorah in the temple. They only had enough untainted oil to make sure that that menorah would stay lit for one day. But as the story goes, it stayed lit miraculously for eight nights. And so every year in December, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah to remember that miracle in the temple. After they kicked the Greeks out, that began what was called the Hasmonean dynasty. The Jews independently controlled Jerusalem, the temple, and the Holy Land prospered for 80 years. Everything that you read here, all the grain thrived, the wine, they lived in great prosperity. Awesome, awesome, wonderful days for the Jewish people. Until 37 BC. What happened in 37 BC? A new kid on the block, Rome. And that's when Rome came down and the Holy Land became a official province of Rome. But look at that prophecy fulfilled. Here in Zechariah chapter 9, three specific, detailed prophecies given and fulfilled. Alexander's conquest 200 years before it happened. The Maccabean Revolt, 350 years before it happened. The triumphant entry of Jesus, 500 plus years before it happened. Do you understand? You can trust your Bible, amen? When the scripture predicts something, it will be fulfilled. Okay, look at chapter 10 with me. We'll go through this very briefly. But I want you to see it because chapter 10 is 
another chapter completely devoted to messianic prophecy. You're going to read about how it's predicted that the Messiah one day will come and will help the nation of Israel in victory. So you're going to see, and it will be very obvious, this entire chapter is dealing with peak number two. So it's looking far ahead into the future. Look at verse one. Ask the Lord for rain. Let me read it this way. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there's no shepherd. Now look at verse 3. My anger is kindled against the whom? The shepherds. And I will punish the goat herds, the leaders. Now I want you to notice when this, this chapter opens with God's great displeasure towards the shepherds of the nation of Israel. The leaders of the nation of Israel. In fact, this chapter is, my anger is kindled against the shepherds of my nation. If you think about everything that went wrong with the nation of Israel and their history, you can trace it all back to corrupt leadership. The shepherds of the nation, the religious leaders of the nation who were supposed to lead the nation in the ways of God. Unfortunately, in the history of Israel, they were corrupt. In fact, this is a great example. In verse 1, he says, ask the Lord for rain. And then in verse 2, not the idols. If you want something, ask the Lord. Don't ask the idols. And yet the spiritual leaders in the days of Israel, in many parts of their history, they would turn the people to idols and away from the Lord. So God is angry at the shepherds. And I'll tell you, throughout the history, you go back to the kingdom days of Israel. I mean, in the northern kingdom, there wasn't one good king. Not one. In the southern kingdom... There were a few good kings, but there were bad kings. Both sections of the kingdom went into captivity under judgment, under poor leadership. The priests, many of them, became corrupt. So they go into Babylon. They come back. We've spoken about it. They come back with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Joshua, the high priest, and later Nehemiah. And those were great leaders, awesome leaders. But do you realize after those shepherds go away, bad shepherds come up and Israel goes back to its old ways again and they become corrupt? The Maccabees, they come on the scene. They're pretty good shepherds. But eventually, even during that 80-year Hasmonean dynasty, the shepherds of Israel grow corrupt. Rome takes over. 
when Jesus comes on the scene, the shepherds of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, well, you know what they were like from your reading of the Gospels. They had turned the religion into something that the common person had no ability to attain. They had turned Judaism into these rules that were impossible to keep. And we know that the original, that many, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the days of Jesus were absolutely corrupt. And they missed their Messiah. Jesus was rejected by the spiritual leadership and establishment of Israel. That's why they've had such a troubling history. Terrible leadership. They rejected Jesus. And you know the story. A few years later in 70 AD, Rome comes in, destroys their temple. The Jews have been scattered for the last 2,000 years. Everywhere they've gone, they've experienced great hardship and suffering. Think of what they faced in the Holocaust. Everything. And you could trace that all the way back to bad shepherds. Shepherds that led the nation of Israel astray. So here in this chapter, the Lord says, I'm going to be your shepherd. You guys can't have shepherds. I'm going to be your shepherd. Look at verse 3. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. So we know Jesus one day is going to be the shepherd. Jesus is going to come And take over the nation of Israel. Now look at verse 4. From him the house of Judah. Speaking of the Messiah. Comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. And from him every ruler together. All those are beautiful descriptions. Of Jesus when he comes again. The cornerstone. The one who holds everything together. The tent peg. The tent peg is what, man, keeps the tent fastened down. When he comes, he will be stable. You can lean on him. The battle bow. When Jesus comes, he will give true victory. And from him, every ruler together. So the prophecy is very clear. The shepherds have blown it throughout history. One day Jesus is coming. And he'll be the shepherd. And there's going to be a conflict in the last days, but God will lead his people Israel in victory. Look at verse 5. Stay with me. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. That speaks of the great conflict that Christ is going to lead his people in victory in when he comes again. Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. 
I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I love verse 8. I will whistle. I wish I could do this. I've never been able to do that. I will whistle for them. I love that. I'm whistling. And I'm going to gather them. For I will redeem them. And they shall increase as they once increased. When Jesus comes again, there's a gathering of all the Jews back to Jerusalem. Verse 9. I will sow or scatter them among the peoples. And they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. When was this prophecy written? 520 B.C. Verse 9 basically predicts the entire church age. What happens with the nation of Israel? He says, I'm going to sow them amongst all the peoples, but they'll remember me in far countries. One day they're coming back. I will gather them. I will bring them to Israel until no more room is found for them. Verse 11, he shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. All that means is when Jesus comes again, there's going to be great affliction on planet Earth. And we know, as the, as the other prophecies point, the nations are going to gather against Israel at this place called Armageddon. It's going to be this incredible last final battle. But Jesus will come. He'll take his people through the sea, through all the affliction, save his people, set up his kingdom. And at that point, there will never be an oppressor come. And at that point, the Messiah speaks peace to the nations. And his dominion spreads from river to river. My friends, this is going to happen literally. It's going to happen literally. Now, I know some of these last day prophecies... You think, wow, could that really, really happen? Yes, it really could happen. The track record in Scripture, like we just saw in Zechariah chapter 9, prophecies are made literally and they are fulfilled literally to the detail. And these details concerning the second coming of Christ will be fulfilled literally. And by the way, I think we're even living in one of the most exciting portions of history, because in our age, we can see some literal things. 
coming together, pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, I have mentioned before in our study of Zechariah that I think May 14, 1948 is one of the most significant days in Bible prophecy. For on that day, the state of Israel became a state in the land of Israel. It's never happened to any nation. I mean, they were scattered for 2,000 years, just as it was predicted. May 14, 1948, a nation of Israel in the land of Israel, speaking Hebrew, still keeping their customs. June 1967, Six-Day War, Israel recaptured Jerusalem. So now they're in the land and they have access and control over the capital city of their kingdom, of their nation, Jerusalem. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is coming a time when the Jews will be back in the land They'll have access to Jerusalem. They'll be surrounded by nations that hate them. Do we see that? They'll be miraculously protected in their city. The Bible also speaks, you know, we, we, new grain, new wine. Uh, God will turn their deserts into gardens. And I'll tell you what, when you go to Israel, you cannot believe what they've done. You see so many of this literally being fulfilled before our very eyes to this day. Now, they are back in the land in unbelief. They still have some bad shepherds. They have not received Christ. But the Bible does teach that one day the nation of Israel will receive Jesus as their Messiah. And I can't wait to show you some of the most amazing predictions that you'll find only in the closing chapters of the book of Zechariah that describe what happens when Jesus comes again. Great stuff. But tonight, be amazed at God's word. Just be amazed at it. This truly is God's word. And you can trust everything. If all these prophecies can be fulfilled, you can trust. And you know what? You can trust everything that the Bible teaches. You know, the Bible teaches what's wrong with the human race. Sin. The Bible tells us how sin came into the world way back in the Garden of Eden. The Bible gives you the definitive answer for what's wrong with the human race. The Bible teaches that you can be forgiven of your sin. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for you at his first coming. He came on that donkey and he was offering salvation. And he paid the price to make it possible for our sins to be forgiven. The Bible says you want to be saved? Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Bible does teach... There's a great future for his people. The church and Israel. 
The Bible does teach that there will be judgment, great judgment, for those who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. Have you done that? I mean, this book teaches you everything about life. Marriage, dating, friendships, finances, career, conflict resolution, everything that you could possibly want to know. And it's God's word to you. Trust it. Grab hold of it. Obey it. You can count on everything that you read in this book. And I would highly recommend that you would spend a lot of time reading, studying, and applying everything that you possibly can to your life. With that, let's close. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, again, I'm just so grateful, Lord, that you have given us revelation of yourself. We can trust you. We can trust what we read in your word. You've demonstrated over and over that you speak in this word. We thank you for the certain hope we have in knowing that one day you soon are coming to take us to be with you and to set up a kingdom we look forward to seeing these, pro- these uh, amazing prophecies being fulfilled. Lord, I'd like to pray for anyone here tonight or perhaps listening online. Have you responded to the gospel message of the Bible? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you trust what's being said in this book? Trust it. Trust Jesus right now to be your Lord and Savior. If you've never asked him to be your Savior, if you've never asked him to wash away your sins, admit that you need that tonight. Acknowledge that he died on the cross for you to wash away all of your sins. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now if that's you. You pray right along with me. You speak straight to the Lord. Lord Jesus, pray, be my Savior. Thank you for coming that first time. Gentle, with salvation in your hand. Offering your own life on that cross for me. I bow before you humbly. And I ask you, Lord, to be my Savior. Wash away all my sins. Make me a brand new person and help me to follow you. And to surrender to everything in your word and live according to your word. Help me, Lord, in those things. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us as your people, no matter how long we've been walking with you, to continue 
to learn your word and apply it to our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.